This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, February the 6th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health has partnered with Yves Sokolingham, tells you all about it. And trendy diets and fad diets, they are all over the internet. But are they a solution to attaining good health? Registered dietitian Leah Scheinhaus offers up some perspective and thoughts. And it's another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. Alicia Yardley, Alex Smythe, and Karen McGee will put their knowledge to the test. I did a little quality control on the questions yesterday. If they have been listening consistently to Now with Dave Brown on the podcast or watching the show live on AMI-tv, they'll do quite well. I think that puts Alex Smythe at a bit of an advantage, but I made a few edits to make sure it wasn't too easy for Alex. Let's get to the top story of the day, and it's all about accessibility and travel. Air Canada's CEO spoke at a parliamentary committee about accessibility issues yesterday. Michael Russo was called to speak after a number of high-profile incidents where people with disabilities were mistreated, lost and damaged mobility devices, lack of assistance at airports and on planes. Russo says the airline served about half a million people with disabilities last year. He feels the incidents... We're outliers. The vast majority had a positive experience. However, we know that we must get better to reach our goal of offering a positive and respectful experience to all passengers. I don't like playing the power rankings game of discrimination or playing either or or whataboutism. But the one lens that I'd have you apply to a statement like that, where, oh, these are outliers, the most of the people had a great experience. Apply that to any other equity-seeking group. Oh, don't worry, we were only horribly racist to a couple of people who took the airline last year. Like, mm, I don't know, man. I know it feels like I've been dumping on Air Canada a lot in the last week or so, but it's because they deserve it. And hence why you were called to a parliamentary committee. Okay, let's uh, shift gears a little bit before I get myself in trouble and talk about about food. Now this topic is this the story is not the topic of the daily poll, but I will get Alex and Laura's reaction to it uh, as well as part of the daily poll. Health Canada has given the green light to a company that produces lab-grown milk proteins. Michelle Zadikian explains. Remilk says it received the AOK from Health Canada regarding its version of the BLG protein, which can be used as a non-animal source ingredient in products that look and taste like traditional milk, cheese, yogurt, and ice cream. Health Canada says it has no objection to the use of the animal-free milk protein in food and no safety concerns. Remilk is currently looking for a Canadian partner to help launch and distribute its product. Michelle Zedekian, the Canadian Press. All right, that's your 
closer look at the news, let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Monday, you were asked, how much do the aesthetics of assistive technology influence whether you'll use it? 0% of you said a lot, 63% of you said a little, and 37% of you said not at all. Today's daily poll is going to be part of a food thread that's going to run through the first 20 to 30 minutes of the show. And goodness gracious, you know I like talking about food. Anybody watching the show can tell by the chins on my face that I love eating food as well. Here's the question. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Twitter, have you ever experimented with a diet trend? All meat, a juice cleanse, all vegetables, etc. Yes or no? Laura Bain, have you ever been tempted by a food trend that pops up on social media or popular culture? Well, I, I feel like I have experimented a lot with my diet over the years. You know, I was vegetarian for a very long time, um, and I found that that really agreed with my system. I'm not vegetarian now, but I don't eat a ton of meat. I've also like tried being vegan for a couple of weeks, and I find that I feel really fantastic. But I, it's a little hard just for me to sustain um, because I like I like food a little bit too much. But I, <laughs> you know, I've experimented with other things, like when I'm working out more, that I've added more protein. I've, I've experimented with intermittent fasting. I have done a juice cleanse. I really found that to be torture. I would maybe, I don't know, maybe I'd call that one a trend. But I, I hesitate to say yes to trying trends, even though I've done a lot of these different things with my diets, because I, I feel like it's healthy to sort of strategically adjust your eating yeah. to try and like make your system feel good or find out what agrees with you or what gives you the most energy. But um, I think you do want to do it in a thoughtful way. And if you're going to make a change, maybe, you know, it's going to take a little while to figure out if that works for you or not. Whereas trend is kind of like bouncing back and forth or maybe trying to like, I don't know, achieve something external. I'm not sure. So, uh, you know, I'm going to say no, although I've, yeah. I've done a lot of experimenting. Yeah, I, I think when I say experimenting, it's sort of the notion of going all in, right? It's not just sort of a dibble or a dabble or a little change here and there. Like, I, I have been tinkering with my breakfast for about 15 years to try and find what works well for me. And you fall into some trends and you fall out of some trends. Oh, we're going to do a smoothie for a little bit. Okay, let's try mixing protein powder with yogurt and granola. See how that works. Works. Okay, all fruit in the morning, and you just sort of dibble and dabble here and there, maybe based on uh, some information and some misinformation that pops up on social media. But I've never done something like the I will only eat beef for a week uh, policy, because I just don't think that would agree with me. I think I think I would struggle with something like that. Alex Smith, what about you? You're someone who cares about food. You care about the preparation of food. You care about the prepare uh, care about the quality of your food. But are you someone who's dabbled with a full blown diet trend? No, not at all. Just because I I always see these different ones that pop up, like as you mentioned, the old meat ones, these cleanses, these all like vegetables. Like I know a lot of people in my life who who do partake in in varying different uh, diets and trends and have done different ones over time. I just find like they're never all that long lasting. Some of them are just plain ridiculous in my mind, and and they don't always contain uh, in and carry the science and and the evidence with them, as you say, Dave. Especially on in the era 
era of social media, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of claims that aren't substantiated. And then there, there are trends or they're fads for a very short period of time and then go away. You want to know why? Because hey, they're either not sustainable or they're really, their health benefits were overblown and they didn't actually provide the uh, the kind of the change, the impact, the improvement that was uh, people were, were looking for. So I always just view it as, okay, it's all about just having balance. You know, we've, we've studied food for a long, long time and it seems like the general consensus is it's all portion control. It's all balanced between having different types of foods, vegetable grains, you know, meats and proteins, things like that in a consistent manner. That's what I tend to go to. But like there's some out there that I, I've seen and I know um, of people in my family they did one where it's like, okay, we restrict all like trans fats or, or anything processed, but I'm allowed to have a Big Mac patty once a week. And it's just like, yeah. things like that are just so bizarre. It's like, how how can that be a, a balance? How can that actually be healthy? Because you, you restrict so much, but then you go for something really bad for you. Like that, that is where I always struggle with these types of fad diets, these, these new pop-ups and trends that seem to come along. What was the one that Joita had on the pulse a couple of weeks ago that was like the 25 bananas a day diet? That was your entire mm -hmm. diet, 25 bananas a day. Uh, you know, it just seems like uh, sometimes you, uh, you, 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 turn, you turn the cycle a little too far. Okay, I want to get your takes on that story from Michelle Zedekian about the lab-produced dairy products. Alex, you and I have talked about lab-produced meat before, other lab-produced mm -hmm. foods. I can't say that I find this outright objectionable. I just don't know that I would go out of my way to seek it, but I, I don't object to the idea of a lab-produced dairy. Yeah, and I, I've been very clear and vocal on the show, and uh, anytime we, we touch on the, the subject, I'm all in favor of, of lab-grown uh, produce, meats, cheeses, like anything that is lab-produced, I'm in favor of it. it. It removes, you know, animal cruelty from the food chain. I still enjoy meats, dairies, things like that. I'm not going to gonna go out of my way. The biggest a question mark around this it's not around the quality or anything it's it's about the price obviously it's going to be far more expensive early on in this type of development but i i have no problem trying it and and probably i'm going to enjoy it the thing is yep uh, the uh, food agency says there's no uh concerns about health or safety and it's supposed to mimic the taste and texture well this could be a viable solution going forward laura what's your uh, what's your level of temptation to indulge in some lab-grown dairy products Oh, temptation is quite low. So I, I feel very concerned about the impact of dairy farming on the environment and certainly about, um, you know, certain practices in factory farming. I think for me, when it comes to lab-grown products that we eat, I would need to understand more about the component ingredients. But, you know, I perhaps would choose to limit my consumption rather than move to a lab-grown product. There's also a lot of absolutely fantastic uh, vegan cheeses out yes, there, some of which yes. I've made myself at home with different like nut flours and nutritional yeast and products like that that really can taste very, very good that I would be more tempted if I was going to reduce my dairy. And I will admit that I do usually um, consume dairy every day. I would tend to move more towards a product like that, I think, than a lab-grown. Um. I do, I do struggle with some of the milk alternatives, but I love nutritional yeast. Oh my gosh, I love nutritional yeast as like a, as a substitute on a pasta instead of cheese. <laughs> oh man, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, have you ever been tempted 
to experiment with a diet trend, yes or no? You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a call, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, the food conversation continues all about diet trends. Registered dietitian Leah Scheinhouse will offer some informed perspective rather than just a couple jabronis yucking it up. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There are oh so many diet trends out there. They have a tendency to come and go. Some stick around, though. So are trendy diets a fad or a solution to attaining good health? Let's get some guidance from registered dietitian Leah Scheinhouse. Leah, thank you so much for making time this morning. Thank you so much for having me this morning. So there are some really popular ones out there. Certainly in the last five to 10 years, you've heard about a lot of people going keto or ketogenic. What are some of the benefits, but also the drawbacks of the ketogenic lifestyle? It's an excellent question because I have that come up a lot when I'm having conversations with some of my clients. So just one thing I want to highlight is what ketogenic actually is, because oftentimes I'll get into deeper conversations where people think that they're in keto, but in fact, they're just um, having a low carb, high protein diet. So it actually entails having a very regimented restrictive diet because the majority of your diet is fats. So 60 to 65% of your diet is fat because you want to use fat as your energy source as opposed to sugars or glucose. And then you want a moderate amount of protein just to maintain that lean body mass, but you don't want protein to be used as a food source to then be converted into glucose. So you really have to make sure you have that restrictive amount of moderate amount of protein and then extreme restriction of carbs. So about 20 to 30 grams of carbs a day. And just to, so that you know what that looks like, a medium-sized apple, that's about 25 grams of oh carbs. Oh, my gosh. That's, so, that's, that's not many yeah, carbs so at all. Exactly. So you don't really think about it. But, for instance, if you're having as a snack like your handful of nuts, that's already 7 to 8 grams of carbs right there. So it really is extremely restrictive and regimented. So if you are going to take that on it's not the easiest diet. Um, so that's where one of the greatest challenges is. But one of the benefits is it has been shown to be um, a good way to lose weight. Um, and part of that is because you're using fat as your energy source, but also because fat is very satiating, it can also lead to like a, a more of a calorie restriction because mm. you're not going to be needing to eat as much because you're going to feel full from what it is that you're eating. It's also been shown in terms of metabolic factors to help with glycemic control. So for those that are have type 2 diabetes or at risk of diabetes, it really does help with that insulin sensitivity and, again, to help reduce your blood sugar levels. 
However, there are some drawbacks because first of all, it is extremely restrictive. So I know, you know, especially if people are social wanting to go out really hard because a lot of social activities um, involve food. So when you have such restriction in terms of what you eat, that can be very challenging. Also, anything that's restrictive, it also means that you're going to be missing out on key nutrients. So certain vitamins and minerals. And one of the things I want to highlight is fiber. So there's Mm. a lot of, yeah. So there's a lot of symptoms that tend to come with, um, with adapting a ketogenic diet. So going into ketosis, you're going to get a lot of flu-like symptoms. So feeling nausea, vomiting, headaches, confusion, as well as just uh, focusing on the fiber aspect. Constipation is a huge issue as well. Um, Fiber, it also, it's a huge part of, you hear this a lot, gut health. Everybody wants good gut health because it's kind of like our second brain. So if you don't have the fiber that tends to come from those non-starch or you're not eating the non-starchy vegetables, so you don't have the starchy vegetables, you don't have the legumes in your diet, which are good sources of fiber. And so that also and implicates things because having good gut health can also improve or reduce your risk of things like depression, anxiety, reduce inflammation. So there's that challenge there as well. So you want to make sure that if you are going to be adapting this kind of lifestyle or this kind of diet, there are positives, there are negatives. You have to kind of look at what works for you, what your ultimate goals are, but work with a health professional to make sure that you're doing it properly Mm -hmm. and that you are finding ways to incorporate those key nutrients that you might be missing out on. This next one was quite popular mm-hmm. through the month of January because people were maybe trying to clean things up a little bit after Christmas. Uh, Juice-based yes. diets. Uh, I have a couple <laughs> friends who are big fitness buffs who are pretty miserable by the end of a week when they're doing a juice-based diet. Similar question, the, the drawbacks, but also the positives. Because there are positives, but, it, they, they, it, there are. It's, but it's, a tough, it's a tough ride to get there. <laughs> Yeah. So you were saying like people at first, they feel very energized. And I think that comes with taking on something new because you're excited about it. But then you said they're so miserable. And that makes sense because again, you're missing out on key nutrients. So with the juicing, you're getting a lot of those vitamins and minerals that you'll get from fruits and vegetables, but you're not eating enough calories. You're not getting enough protein. You are missing out on some of those key nutrients which are going to affect your mental and your physical state. What I like to think, so there's this myth that a lot of people think, you know, juicing, it's detoxifying. These foods, they detoxify you. But our bodies are incredible machines. So they actually have the ability through your kidneys and your liver to actually do the detoxifying. It's not the foods, it's your body doing that. but what um uh so but there are benefits also what i like to think of in terms of juicing is a great way to kickstart eating healthy mm. so i hear that yeah so i hear this all the time where people are like how do i cut back on those cravings like from the sugars the candy the chocolate it's so hard and you're constantly craving it but when you do some sort of like a juicing cleanse, I don't, I wouldn't think of it as detoxifying your body. Cause again, you have your liver and your kidneys to do that, but kind of ridding yourself of a lot of those processed foods 
reducing those cravings and getting yourself ready to take on more of a healthier lifestyle and incorporating more healthier foods. So mm. it's a good kickstart to then adopting healthier eating habits. I imagine this is going to relate to another trend, and this is a popular trend. A mm -hmm. lot of people have adopted the plant-based diet. And again, yes. there's a ton of benefits to that form of eating. But again, mm -hmm. I imagine with the plant-based, it boils down to making sure that you're finding balance in there and make it, still yes. making good choices inside that umbrella. Absolutely. So there's a variety of ways to look at plant-based. A lot of people, when they hear plant-based, they think vegan. And there are a lot of similarities between the two, but when it comes to veganism, you can still make unhealthy choices. Like you can still have, let's say, a vegan cookie or be drinking beverages that are high in sugars, not necessarily healthy. Um, there's a lot of processed foods that come with veganism, like those, you know, fake deli meats or the vegan cheeses. But with plant-based, the idea is to optimize your health by having more whole foods and reducing those processed foods. So you don't have to take it full on. It is focusing more on having the um, more of like vegan type foods or plant-based foods. And one of the concerns, it does require careful planning because you do want to make sure that you are getting those key nutrients. So for example, making sure you're getting enough protein, making sure you're getting enough iron, B12, zinc, your omega-3s, really difficult. Some of them you can't even get through plant-based foods. So you would need to supplement and take some supplements with that. Um, or you can also adopt an aspect of plant-based so you don't have to go full out plant um just eating plant-based foods but incorporating more whole foods in your diet mm. and reducing some of those refined or processed foods one of the takeaways I've had from my uh, years of riding the weight gain and weight loss yo-yo mm -hmm. is that no matter which diet you might choose to go with, you can make bad choices in any diet. I, I, I ate a bunch of falafel on Sunday, and I was like, well, this is probably a little bit better than eating the beef, but I still ate this deep-fried <laughs> falafel. So I imagine in the, in the overall strategy, no matter what you're choosing as maybe an umbrella of diet, what's the best approach to be mindful of in trying to build? a healthy diet. Yes, I love some of those points that you were saying. It's not because you don't want to take on something too restrictive that you're not going to be able to stick with. You want something sustainable. So it's more about adopting a healthier lifestyle. And there's room for other foods. But I really like to emphasize the Mediterranean diet because it does highlight a lot of that plant-based aspect of it. But it does, it's not fully plant-based because it does incorporate seafood, like some fish, as well as low-fat dairy. But it also recommends to eliminate red and processed meats, a lot of processed and sugary foods, and really emphasizes and encourages consumption of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, healthy fats like nuts, seeds, olive oil, avocado, um, having those omega-3 fish and leaner proteins. And so it's not restrictive because it does encompass a variety of different foods. So it's much easier to adopt this type of 
uh, lifestyle and have that balance. And like I mentioned earlier, when you have anything restrictive, it does take a toll on, you know, your social life because mm. it could be really difficult to go out and, or if you're going to people's houses and what it is that you can eat. So it does incorporate so many different foods. But it does provide also that balance to optimize your health and reduce risk of a lot of chronic diseases like cancer, heart disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes. So it's really, like you mentioned, having that balance and something that you can stick to long term without having that, you know, restriction going on a diet, going off a diet. You just you want to just make positive changes that are sustainable. The big tinker for me in my diet, especially in the last six to eight weeks, as I've tried to get back mm. into weightlifting in a significant way, is to change my breakfast. And, and I'll tell you right. what I had for breakfast today, but then I want to hear what you had for breakfast, because maybe, oh, okay. maybe I want to follow your lead. I've been mixing <laughs> whey protein powder with Greek yogurt, some granola, and a couple of frozen blueberries. And I find it's really working for me here in the last month or so in terms of satiation and energy. But I want to hear from a professional. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I'm just wondering, do you have cameras in my house? It's <laughs> <laughs> literally what I'm eating for breakfast every morning. No way. So Are you I serious? Yeah. <laughs> I have yogurt every morning. It's my go-to. And I, I do like to recommend it because finding a good breakfast food is really difficult because a lot of breakfast foods tend to be very high in carbs. And they're not very filling. So it's really important to make sure you get a good source of protein. So I really like the Greek yogurt. So I, I, I had plain Greek yogurt. I like to put the berries in it, the seeds, so some chia seeds, um, a little bit of cinnamon. And so you're getting that mix of your healthy fats. You're getting the protein. You're getting some carbs from the berries. So it's a good mixture of, you know, all the nutrients you need. And it's very filling. So... I guess, you know, we're eating the same things for breakfast. So you're definitely on track. Well, you're probably beating me at lunch and dinner, though. Uh, but I appreciate the validation. <laughs> Leah, thank you for this. Thank you for this informed perspective. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs> that's, registered, that's registered dietitian Leah Scheinhouse. You can follow her on LinkedIn by searching for Leah Scheinhouse. That's spelled L-E-A-H. And Scheinhouse is H S H. A-I-N-H-O-U-S-E. I'm very good at spelling. Coming up after the break, the Center for Mental Health and Addiction have partnered with YouTube Health to promote mental health literacy in Canada. Dr. Sanjeev Sakalingam tells you all about it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Center for Addiction and Mental Health has partnered with YouTube Health. They've created a platform that delivers accurate information about mental health. Dr. Sanjeev Sakalingam can offer you some more insight. Dr. Sakalingam is the Chief Medical Officer at CAMH in Toronto. Hey, good morning. Thank you for making the time to be part of the program this morning. 
Thank you for having me, Dave. Glad to be here. So why did Cam H believe there's a need for mental health literacy in Canada? It's a good question, and I think it comes from a few things. We know that over time, we've done a lot in society and many healthcare organizations, uh, you know, information sharing systems and venues to really destigmatize mental illness and addictions. We've come, uh, I would say, a fair amount uh, in terms of our progress, in terms of addressing stigma, but we still have a ways to go. And then I think on top of that, we know that people have evolved how they search for health information. We no longer, I hate to say it, I'm a physician. Uh, physicians are no longer the sole source of information in, in uh, healthcare. And we have lots of ways that we access information, um, including online content, social media, and so on. And so, especially through the pandemic, we saw an uptake in this. And really, this is an opportunity to, to bring together expertise and experience from the Center for Addiction and Mental Health and healthcare prote- uh, professionals with YouTube Health to really bring that to the forefront and make it accessible uh, for uh, people in society. What makes YouTube Health such a great platform for this partnership? Well, I think for YouTube Health that we we really see that uh, you know looking onto YouTube. We have the ability to provide videos, um, have transcripts available, make things available uh, as opposed to reading in print or solely one modality. And so really for us, it's about using the full scope of YouTube Health, including some of its features to make it more accessible, um, more um, digestible in terms of the information that people are, are seeking. You mentioned the notion of stigma. It really does feel in the last decade or so, there has been a lot of conversation about the stigmatization of mental health and addiction. How can this partnership continue to advance that conversation? Well, I think it's really important. We we are covering a range of topics through this partnership with YouTube Health across the spectrum from mood disorders like depression, anxiety, a lot of things we heard about over the last few years that really have had prominence across a range of age groups, but also addictions like alcohol use and other drug addictions as well. And I think for people who are struggling or family members who are concerned or just a general public and awareness, especially our youth, having something like YouTube Health in these videos can actually convey to people uh, that uh, there are opportunities to recognize um, when someone might be having distress that needs help and to help people seek help in a way that is not shaming or uh, in a way that might be further stigmatizing. And I think, you know, as part of this, we've been very careful in working with YouTube Health and CAMH uh, as, as well as bringing in people with lived experience and content experts, like specialists. So bringing that whole team together has been so helpful in ensuring we have a message that people can hear, doesn't perpetuate stigma, and really makes it uh, available for people to uh, use and um, to support people in their lives. I know there's a certain Captain Obviousness to this question, but I do want to get your perspective on it. Social media is a crowded, crowded space with a lot of people who have a lot of opinions, sometimes uninformed. What's the significance of the credibility and gravitas that CAMH can bring to this partnership? Well, I think as uh, Canada's largest mental 
Health Hospital. We we have a range of researchers and scientists. So one really important point is we often see a lag in getting timely, credible, evidence-based information into people's hands. Often it's about up to 18 years sometimes when we have like research emerging that gets into clinical care and practice for the people who need it. And so being able to partner with the range of expertise that we have in a way, in a time where misinformation is really high. Again, if you Google certain conditions, you'll get a range of information. And while there may be some good pieces of information, we don't actually have a one-stop shop, a, a hub, so to speak, to provide this information. And so YouTube Health with its uh, scope and reach and CAMH with the expertise, credibility, and the co-creation model that we use to create our information really brings that to the forefront um, and I hope will address misinformation that's out there. How is the partnership going to give people an opportunity to interact, perhaps in the comment section or through other opportunities to reach out? Yeah, we have made it available for people to leave comments and comments serve a couple of purposes. One, it's a good opportunity for us to get real-time feedback other than likes and, and views. It actually gives us more qualitative feedback about what's going well and in terms of how that information being presented it allows us to evolve as we develop uh, future modules and, uh, and videos. The second piece is those comments are really helpful for people to leave comments on what they would like to learn about. It off, often serves as like a needs assessment for us to identify what is that true need that people have for certain types of information. And again, we can look at some of those trends and how we might be able to, again, develop new content uh, as part of this partnership to uh, serve people. YouTube.com slash C-A-M htv youtube.com slash c-a-m-h-t-v dr sakalingham thank you so much for taking some time this morning congratulations on the partnership i hope it helps a ton of people thank you so much for having me and being able to share that today appreciate it that's CAMH's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Sanjeev Sakalingam. For more information, as mentioned, you can visit youtube.com slash C-A-M-H-T-V, youtube.com slash C-A-M-H-T-V. Coming up in 60 seconds, there's an update on the storms brewing in the Atlantic provinces. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index lost more than 1% in trading yesterday in a broad-based decline. Toronto's TSX index fell 213 points to close at 20,871. New York's Dow Jones average lost 274 points and the Nasdaq gave back 31. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 193 points. Hong Kong's Hang Seng index surged 626 points or 4% after a Chinese government investment fund said it would step up stock purchases. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 73.92 cents U.S. Air Canada CEO Michael Russo was blasted yesterday by members of a Commons committee holding a hearing on services for Canadians with disabilities. 
In response, Russo noted the airline does make mistakes before pointing to an expedited accessibility scheme announced in November that includes new measures to improve the travel experience for those passengers living with a disability. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Let's turn to the weather story of the day and Alex Smythe. Alex, what's the latest out of the Maritimes in the Atlantic provinces? Yeah, Dave. So as we've heard throughout uh, yesterday and then uh, even from last week, it's the storm making its way through the Maritimes is now in Newfoundland. So uh, it started last night and, and began to move into the region, specifically the Avalon uh, Peninsula, which is the southern uh, portion of Newfoundland and Labrador. And it started by bringing a mix of rain and snow. It's now kind of turned from that rain into snow today. Uh, St. John's Newfoundland has closed their schools already this morning in anticipation of all the snow that is set to come. It's not going to be as severe as it was in other parts of the region. Uh, today, they're, they're calling for upwards of 15 centimeters of snow in St. John's and the hardest hit areas of the province. Other areas may see closer to five centimeters of snow. It's because of this mix of rain and snow, it, it really has uh, made it kind of difficult to track and predict just how much is actually gonna take the form of snow instead of rain. Now that said, there are gonna be heavy winds that are going to accompany this system. So wind gusts up to 80 kilometers per hour can be expected in the St. John's region. The good news is, however, that the system should pass rather quickly by tomorrow and when that does happen it will be a period of settled weather within the region so the rest of the week should be pretty warm and temperate it's going to be calm no more activity predicted for the rest of the week in february for st john for halifax for that region so they continue to dig out and can catch their breath before another Atlantic storm formulates in the area. Yeah, till the invariable next one. Alex, yeah. thank you for this, although hopefully the next one doesn't have 150 centimeters attached to it. That's Alex Smythe at the Weather Desk. Coming up after the break, Freedom to Read Week is returning this month. Sault Ste. Marie community reporter Dorothy McNaughton wants to talk about it. And so do I. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Freedom to Read Week is back later this month. The annual event raises awareness about censorship and access to books and magazines. Sault Ste. Marie community reporter Dorothy McNaughton has something to say about this, and so do I. Hey, good morning, Dorothy. Good morning, Dave. Dorothy, why do you believe this event is so significant? Well, for one thing, I th don't think a lot of people are aware of it, of Freedom to Read Week to start with. And I don't think they're aware of the number of books that have been challenged or banned across North America. And that's what this week is about, is raising awareness of books that people challenge or that have been banned for uh, what one might term sort of... Uh, insignificant reasons um, in, in the grand scheme of things. 
Yeah, it feels like it goes a little bit beyond some of, like, the news coverage of the, quote, culture war that's happening. It runs a little bit deeper than that in terms of platforming voices. So if you were going to apply a disability lens to this topic, what is it? It's the fact that people that can read regular print have access to all kinds of material. People who, for reasons varying, it's not just uh, visual uh, difficulties that cause people not to be able to read regular print. It's things like learning disabilities, not being able to hold a book. People with print disabilities um, don't have access to the same materials as everybody else. And, and that's been a struggle for a long, long time when the CNIB library was producing materials only for people with vision loss and beyond that now um, with the Center for Equitable Library Access and NELS, the network, National Network for Equitable Library Service. Um, both of those services have made a difference, but a lot of people don't know there's still only 5 to 7% of what's available in regular print that's available to people with print disabilities. Yeah, that, that, that is a very jarring number when you really think about it in terms of the amount of information that is not at the fingertips, eyeballs, or eardrums of people with disabilities. And, and it speaks to the core role that an organization like the Center for Equitable Library Access really plays in promoting literacy for all Canadians. Yes, you're absolutely right. And so, you know, that's part of the whole process, too, is to make people aware what is available out there and then how to access it to make that gap less and less over time. The other issue is publishers who make their materials available to people with print disabilities. Not every publisher makes sure that their materials are available in accessible formats. So that's an area that also has to be addressed. Yeah, Dorothy, when I think about that, that speaks to purposeful decision-making at corporate levels, right? That that if you're going to do that, you have to make sure that's purpose, right? It's the idea of we are going to record this audiobook right from the start. We're going to make sure we have the capacity to put a book out in Braille or any alternative format along the way. It needs to be deliberate decision-making. Absolutely. As you say, right from the beginning when that book is produced, I'm going to give the points of contact here for Freedom to Read Week. It runs February the 18th to the 24th, freedomtoread.ca, freedomtoread.ca to learn more. Okay, Dorothy, let's talk about a local happening in the Sioux and not the Bon Sioux Winter Carnival without any snow. You're already <laughs> looking ahead to Family Day here in about a week and a half. There's a Family Day fundraiser coming to the Canadian Bush Plain Heritage Center in the Sioux. So, Dorothy, I know you've got a deep connection to the Bush Plain Heritage Centre, but what organization does this fundraiser support? Well, it supports the Canadian Bush Plain Heritage Centre, but it also supports something called Entomica. And, you know, some people in the Sioux are aware of it, but maybe other people aren't, or people in the region, because it's a fascinating addition to the Bush Plain Centre. It's located there, and it's and it's called entomica. It's an insectarium. Ooh. So it's it's like what you would find in a science center. It's got um, all different kinds of insects from all over the world, actually. So not just ones that might have been used here in the Sioux at what they used to call the bug lab, uh, the, the 
Great Lakes Forestry Center had a an area where they were doing research into bugs that affected trees. Um, so some of those will be there, but also a lot of other ones. And children can actually uh, touch them, feel them, have them crawl in their hand. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dorothy, the insects also give me the creepy crawlies. Yeah. But I totally understand why an organization like this can be a critical piece to local education fabric, right? Like you never know what you might inspire by giving a young person access to the information at something like an insectarium. You're absolutely right. And lots of school children go there, which I think is great. Any exposure and and helping them recognize, you know, the good things bug do, bugs do, the bad things bugs do to trees, for example, and how research is trying to um, eliminate those. Uh, and, and what I like about a lot of what the Forestry Centre has done is they look at natural predators, you know, rather than chemicals, at, if at all possible. So, Dorothy, what's actually going on that day on Family Day, aside from the fundraiser itself? Yeah. What kind of activities are going on around the event? Well, I, I don't have a lot of details, but what it, what I do know is there are going to be lots of activities for kids. They always have lots of activities for kids. Um, food, cultural experiences, vendors, um, you know, they do a great job of it. And then you can wander around and look at the planes, which you know, I love to do anyway. Um, and and, and it's, it's just an education in itself. It's a lot of fun and it's for the whole family. It goes from 10 to 3. So um, families that are looking for something different to do, I think it's a great opportunity. Dorothy, I've, I've, I've been an Ontario resident here for about 15 years, officially since 2012, but I've lived in Ontario since 2009. The first time Family Day came up on me, it just blew me away. I, the, the first time Family Day came up on me and the, when the August long weekend came up on me, yeah. both times I showed up to my school thinking I had to do something that day and both times I got to locked doors. I was like, these Ontarians, they have it right with this day off in the middle of February and a day off in the middle of August. You bet. <laughs> That's why these kinds of activities are so great because parents are thinking, okay, what can I do with my kids today? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or the grandparents, Dorothy. We can't forget True. about the grandparents either. Oh, absolutely. That's us. <laughs> hey, uh, bushplane.com to learn a little bit more. Bushplane.com to learn a little bit more. I also want to give a, a phone number out here. It's uh, 705 945 62 Four, two. Dorothy, you like to give shout-outs to the Northern Ontario and Rural Get-Together with Technology Zoom meeting, an opportunity to talk all about technology and how it can impact people's lives. So what's the topic of discussion for the next group meeting? Well, we're going to be talking about apps, which, you know, we talk about every so often because there's so many new ones that come out and lots of them you, you're not sure about. You don't know whether they're accessible. What I like about our group is um, everybody gives uh, ideas. Oh, I tried this app and it's great. Or don't try this app. <laughs> it's not accessible. <laughs> you know, um, especially the newer ones. And, you know, not everybody knows how they work or how easy they are to use. Uh, Dorothy, what are some of, like, let, let's say you were presenting. What are some of the apps that have been uh, making you happy of late? Oh, I love the Libby app uh, because it's books, <laughs> Re reading books. Uh, 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 an app that I've used that 
we don't have here that I wish we did was the Move It app, which is a, a GPS app that's connected with um, transit in various communities. And I, I mentioned before when we had been to Sweden, um, we used it to get around because it linked all the different methods of transportation together. It was fabulous. Um, so, you know, we apparently there's something here uh, that tells you the time the bus comes or whatnot, but I haven't used it. I'm not sure if it's accessible for Android. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, it's not exactly the same as Move It. I, I wish they had Move It. An integrated transit app. I like that yes. one, especially considering, yes. uh, for example, in the greater Toronto area, and this will be discussed in the second hour of the show, there's about six different transit services that uh, work not so much in conjunction with each other in this city, and I can only imagine what it's like up there in the Sioux. Hey, Dorothy, yes. I know you guys like a little bit of snow in winter, but enjoy some of that green grass while you can. Oh, thank you. And can I just add our, our meeting that is usually, our GTT meeting, which is usually on the uh, third Tuesday of the month has to be moved to Wednesday, February 28th, same time, 7 p.m. Eastern. Yeah, I've got that one right here. Wednesday, yeah, February good. 28th, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And if you want to get involved, you can email Corey at the CCB in Ottawa. So that's Corey, C-O-R-R-Y dot G-T-T at ccbnational.net. I'll do that one again Corey.gtt at ccbnational.net. Or, oh, look at this. I'm going to give the phone number, too. Got a phone number in front of me as well. Sometimes I like the old telephone. 1 877 0968, extension 550. That's 1 877 0968, extension 550. Hey, Dorothy, all the best to you. Have a great day. Thanks. Same to you. That's Dorothy McNaughton, community reporter in Sault Ste. Marie. In one minute, Laura Bain will have the entertainment report. But first, more companies are jumping into the headset space. Mike Dubusky has more in Tech Trends. From ABC News, Tech Trends, the $3,500 Apple Vision Pro headset is getting some competition from a company called Xreal. They are touting this as the cheaper alternative to the Apple Vision Pro. IGN's Taylor Lyle says the company's Air 2 Ultra is set to retail for just under $700. For that, you get a headset that looks like a pair of sunglasses, but with two micro LED screens behind the lenses. People can use this for recreational use, like playing video games. You could connect it to something that has a USB-C or HDMI kind of output, so like a Steam Deck, for example. But she says hardware only tells half the story. Think of it like this. When you buy an Xbox or a PlayStation or, or any type of game console, well, what are you buying it for? Are you buying it because it's powerful or are you buying it because of certain games you want to play on it? Which means that, like the Vision Pro, it definitely has the mind of, hey, we want to get this more so in the hands of the developers or, oh, this product's aimed more at developers. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Let's turn to the world of entertainment. Laura Bain, some sad news from the world of country music. Mm -hmm. um, country music icon Toby Keith died yesterday at age 62. 
Um, a lot of people will certainly know that name. He'd been open about his diagnosis of stomach cancer that he received back in 2022 and the treatment that he's been undergoing. But just a few of uh, his accomplishments, he was named Academy of Country Music Entertainer of the Year twice. He's had 20 number one billboard hits. Wow. And he continued to play shows up until about a month ago. Um, very active on Instagram. I had a look at his Instagram and uh, he posted towards the end of December, three sold out shows in Vegas was a damn good way to end the year. Mm. So um, that's pretty nice. I'm probably not supposed to say that, uh, but maybe we'll let it slide this time. So, uh, you know, I can't say that I agree with uh, a lot of his politics. And for me, it is hard to separate out the art from the artist. I don't try to do that. But uh, I do respect that. I think he was someone who was very true to himself uh, and certainly a very talented musician. And I think we have a clip of one of his hits. Uh, I love this bar to play. I love this bar. We got cowboys. We got truckers. Broken-hearted fools and suckers. And we got hustlers. We got fighters. Early birds and all-nighters. And the veterans. Laura, like you said, he was definitely his own man. I also don't agree with a lot of his politics. In fact, that made it very difficult to find a song to play this morning. But he did start an era and generation of outlaw country that still resonates to this day. Oh, absolutely. And just hearing that song kind of makes me feel like I want to have a want to have a drink of whiskey and maybe some bar snacks. But um, yeah, whiskey, whiskey for you and uh, sorry, beer for you. I'm messing up his own line here. (laughs) Whiskey for you and beer for his horses. Whiskey for his men, beer for his horses. There you go, Dave. (laughs) Um, Now, I do have another story that I'm bringing to you today with um, that's a little more on the lighter side or perhaps a little more on the fluffier side. So uh, lots of people will know that the Super Bowl is happening this Sunday. Dave, you're going to laugh. I Googled it to confirm. So safe to say that I will not be watching the Super Bowl this Sunday. (laughs) Um, But one sporting event that I might be watching is the 20th annual Puppy Bowl. So this is an event that happens every year opposite the Super Bowl that mimics the Super Bowl, but uses puppies that are available for adoption as the players. (laughs) So Dave, there's two teams, Team Rough and Team Fluff. And they compete for the long barky trophy. Um, so in order to score a touchdown, competitors have to carry or drag a toy into either end zone, and there's no limit to the number of toys that can be uh, in play at one time. So um, there's also a kitty halftime show where a large scratching post is brought onto the field, <laughs> and kittens play with things like balls of yarn and laser pointers for 30 minutes. It sounds amazing. Um, and as I mentioned, all of the players are available for adoption. And this event historically has a 100% adoption rate for competitors, uh, meaning that in the 20 years that it's been running, over 1,400 animals have been adopted. So if folks are wondering where they can watch this, this Sunday, February 11th, 2 p.m. Eastern on Animal Planet, Discovery Channel, TBS, True TV, or it can uh, can be streamed on Discovery Plus and Max. I sense that there might be a trial subscription coming up in my near future. But Dave, I know you're going to be watching the Super Bowl. Is there any chance that you might maybe flip 
flip over to the puppy bowl now and then or have it up on a second screen? Will they time me when I tell you this? Every make sure to check in because what an amazing way to spend a couple uh, spend a couple minutes on Sunday afternoon waiting for the actual football to start and what an amazing cause what an amazing purpose it's cute it's purposeful it's perfect Oh, wonderful. Well, this was my first time hearing about it, but I think I may finally have found my game. And now I have an excuse to make some of those uh, Super Bowl snacks and watch and watch puppies and kittens. It's a win-win. Oh, Laura, I've made you talk about food already today, but believe you me, by the week's end, you, Alex, and I will be hashing out some Super Bowl snack talk somewhere along the way. So be ready. Be ready. Sounds good. <laughs> Laura, have a great day. Thanks, Dave. You too. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Let's get a little bit more Toby Keith on the way out the door with I Love This Bar. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. We got cowboys. We got truckers. Broken-hearted fools and suckers. We got hustlers. We got fighters. Early birds and all-nighters. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv and in audio form at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Tuesday, February the 6th. 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the inquest into the James Smith Cree Nation mass killings has released its recommendations. Journalist John Lepke will share some of the details. And the show will wrap up on a much lighter note with another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. Alicia Yardley, Alex Smythe, and Karen McGee will put their knowledge to the test. Speaking of the news, the hour begins with the regional news update. Starting in the prairies, the Alberta NDP leadership race has its first official candidate. Calgary member Kathleen Ganley has tossed her hat in the ring. Ganley wants to emphasize economic issues in her campaign. An economy that doesn't work for people isn't working. And that is what's happening right now under the UCP. People are struggling for the basics. They're barely getting by, and they're worried because they have nothing to put away for tomorrow. Ganley also wants to build on gains in the Calgary area from the last election. I'm incredibly proud of the gains that we made in the last election. We won the popular vote in Calgary for the first time ever. We went from three MLAs to 14. Um, I think we win Calgary by offering a vision for the future, by offering um, our vision for an economic future that works for everyone. Ganley served as Justice Minister during Rachel Notley's time as Premier. Over to Ontario. The Ontario government will subsidize public transit fares so riders won't have to pay double fares switching between different regional services in the Greater Toronto Area. The One Fare program applies to transfers between Go Transit, the Toronto Transit Commission, Brampton Transit, Durham Region Transit, Mickley, and York Region Transit. Premier Doug Ford provides an example of who might benefit. That means someone living in Barrie can take a Barrie Transit bus to the GO station, ride the GO train to here, Downsview Park Station, and take the subway to the TMU campus. 
all with one fare. That sounds like an awful commute. The program will cost $67 million to implement in the first year. The Roundtable will tackle this topic in about 30 minutes. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes John Lepke for a sports chat. John, the Paris 2024 Paralympic Games are still a few months away, and there's some uncertainty for a couple marquee wheelchair athletic programs in Canada. Wheelchair basketball and wheelchair rugby, both in a precarious qualification position. What's the big picture here, John? Absolutely. So the big picture is that historically over the, uh, and this is talking about trends, um, the Paralympics uh, and and the member organizations have tended to shift towards uh, more, less positions open at zonal qualifiers, so um, the the tournaments in each zone, and more towards the um, the qualifications at these um, sort of last chance events, sometimes called the qualification tournaments, sometimes called and, and you're the French speaker here, not me, but Rapache tournament, um, and so. This means that because Canada in both wheelchair rugby and wheelchair basketball, uh, both men's and women's in the case of wheelchair basketball, um, did not qualify their zonal qualifiers, they are now all over them all over the world in these next couple of months to book their ticket to Paris. What are the big implications of these teams perhaps not qualifying for the Paris games? what what's the broader implication? Yeah, I mean, it would be I, I, I'm not mincing words here to say it would be historic for these teams not to qualify um and and i still by the way think that that is a s relatively small chance that they would not qualify um but it also puts a tremendous strain on the sporting system of these organizations to be going to in the wheelchair rugby sense um they're going to new zealand in march uh, the wheelchair basketball teams are in uh france and Japan, respectively, you know, these aren't these aren't cheap trips, and these aren't, you know, you can tell by the quotes from uh, people like uh, head coach of the wheelchair rugby team, Patrick Cote, that that Canada isn't taking this lightly, um, because there are also massive funding implications potentially if you don't make the Paralympics. And that is where perhaps you and I can enter into a little bit of speculation about the suggestions that exist here. Because when I when, when you and I talk about wheelchair basketball and wheelchair rugby as marquee events, we, we mean that. Like, those are massive, massive pop Paralympic sports in regards to popularity. So perhaps the difficulty in qualifying could be structural, but it might also imply that the world is catching up in Paris sport. And that's not to imply that Canada was miles and miles and miles ahead, but as the international Paralympic movement becomes more mainstream and becomes more accepted and becomes more funded, that means that programs that have been leaders for 20 or 30 years, the world is catching up. Of course, the flip side might be, is it just a total lack of funding and support that exists internally and has nothing to do externally? I know it's a binary, John. I know it's unfair. <laughs> and I know it's speculation. But where would you mm -hmm. land inside that broader conversation? I, I think historically Canada in Paris sport has struggled with the idea that, that the world has caught up. But I think it's especially true now. I mean, if we're talking about wheelchair rugby, wheelchair rugby created in Canada. 
right? So this is a challenge for these teams to recruitment is always a challenge, particularly in wheelchair rugby, but same is true in wheelchair basketball. Um, but in wheelchair rugby, we see, you know, for a very long time, it was sort of like, okay, who from the top four in the world is going to win this time? And now it's more like, uh, like a top eight or a top six. Um, for example, the uh, teams in South America have much better showings in those zonal tournaments than they have historically. Um, we see the same with the various levels of wheelchair rugby. I won't go too far into the weeds, but the various uh, teams in wheelchair rugby in, in Europe um, and in wheelchair basketball, you know, it would have probably been unheard of for certain teams that are in this repertoire tournament to to be there in wheelchair basketball. And yet we find ourselves there. For example, the um, the the impact that China post 2008 in the development of their teams, uh, particularly on the women's side, has has shifted some things um, in in terms of, for example, Australia's ability to qualify over the last eight years or so. Mm. Uh, and John, to, to really get into a specific here, for example, sure. the Canadian women's wheelchair basketball team onto their will be onto their third coach and not even officially name, named yet their third coach in less than about 14 months. So it's not just that the, the stakes are high, there's some instability in real time. There's instability in real time and, and wheelchair basketball both in Canada and worldwide is in an interesting spot as um, things like American college programs continue to boom. Um, we're seeing a lot of Canadian athletes going down to play more, more than ever. Um, that's anecdotal. I haven't, I haven't looked at the data, but uh, compared to 10 years ago, it's certainly higher as more athletes have been able to go to places like the university of Illinois and the university of Texas Arlington to, to apply their trade and, and develop along with, you know, wheelchair basketball has a longstanding um, professional leagues in places like Germany, Spain, um, and those leagues are continuing to thrive and continuing to develop that international talent. The challenge is that lower end of the pipeline, yeah. those, um, you know, the day-to-day -day club teams and things like yeah. that in the last 15 years have really struggled. And that ends up invariably creating fracturing, right? That was something that's been said about Canadian soccer forever, when sort of half the national team is in uh, England and then a third of the national team is hanging out in Germany and then a couple are going down to colleges in the US. You can never necessarily build true great national team chemistry if everybody is everywhere all at once. Good movie reference. Uh, what can I say, man? Um, uh, professional broadcaster over here. Uh, there you go. Gotcha. Um, the very same. So, yeah, it, it's very challenging, especially when, you know, traditionally when we think particularly of basketball, right, we think of, in a way, your NBA team is a stronger allegiance to your national team, right? But for a lot of these athletes, the national team is where their money comes from, it's where their stability comes from, and there's that natural instability of having to, you know, qualify and be named to the team and and deal with card funding, as happens in parasport. Um, we've seen some some increases there, right? We just saw the CPC announce that that uh, medal winners can expect uh, some money for their wins. Yeah, um, fair, comp fair, compens fair compensation to Olympians. Yeah, equal compensation. Yeah. Uh, 20 years too late, but that's another topic. Um, and, and so you're exactly right that, that the ability for teams to 
you know, uh, coalesce together to, to come together. There have been multiple attempts at doing this, you know, at, at academy program that runs in Ontario. Historically, particularly the women's team has been known to centralize before bigger tournaments, um, ending up in places, uh, you know, across Canada to really come together. But but that's um, short-term solutions to larger problems. Hey, John, thank you for this. Don't go anywhere because you're coming back in the next segment to uh, tackle something, uh, I'm not going to say more serious, but but something that is quite serious. There you go. Because what we're talking about now is a serious topic, but what you've got coming up next is also quite, quite serious. Because after the break, John will take a closer look at the inquest into the James Smith Cree Nation mass killings and the recommendations that the inquiry has made. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The inquest into the James Smith Cree Nation mass killings has released its recommendation. The mass stabbing left 11 people dead. The jury made 14 recommendations as part of the inquest. Coroner Blaine Beaven made 15 recommendations. John Lepke is a freelance journalist in Saskatoon. Hey, good morning again, John. Good morning, Dave. John, this news story was talked about uh, extensively, both regionally and across the country. But what is some of the broader context? Absolutely. So the broader context within this province is that um, there is a there's a and and uh, it's a fair deep mistrust between um, communities in this province when it comes to. Um, uh, indigenous relations. We've seen uh, the Colton Bushi uh, uh, issue from from a, a few years ago, and, and the wider context is that this is um, the biggest uh, concern of this type in this province in in decades. And and it's also the from a media perspective, it's the first story you mentioned earlier in the segment that that uh, you know it was a big story. Um, nationally and internationally and that that leads to a lot of attention that that parts of our province are are not used to and it, it has a, had a tremendous impact on um not just james smith and and surrounding area but but really this province as a whole john we cannot get into all 29 recommendations but you mentioned that part of the context here is a distrust between police and some residents in remote communities. What were some of the recommendations that were made in regard to policing? Absolutely. So some of the recommendations uh, include that that the RCMP, to the best of their ability, I believe is the wording, um, have additional staffing. Um, there was also some some criminal code related things uh, or criminal code adjacent, I suppose I should say, things um, such as designating. One of the suggestions was to designate um, a, a different type of uh, dangerous offender uh, designation that could apply. Um, and also there were some recommendations for the community itself, such as um, increasing the amount of signage available and things like that. What, what do they mean by signage? So just that the that the um, areas of the community are 
signposted um, to support when uh, emergencies are being had in the community and and people know where oh, where they are going to to intersect with that so the, the ability to orient someone who might not be as familiar with the community okay i, I yeah I, apologies what 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 other recommendations were directed towards the james smith Cree Nation? yeah so um the james smith Cree Nation, a lot of the a lot of the recommendations have to do with that intersection uh with policing uh like we mentioned um and a, a lot of those also have to do with um uh, the criminal code related things such as one of the uh, recommendations is that uh, people have um somebody who who supports somebody through their through their sentence and and their um recovery reintegration from that uh sentence that includes being able to have um somebody who is culturally uh in tune, um, a competent, whichever word we would like to select, to make sure that that people are able to um, reintegrate successfully and hopefully prevent um, things such as this happening. John, there, there's uh, you mentioned it's it's been decades of frayed relationships and and instability that has existed between the province and the people of some of these regions. So no inquiry that lasted for a couple of weeks is going to do much to patch over that. But what's the reaction been like to the recommendations? Absolutely, I, I think the. My perception is that overall, there is that sense that you that comes with inquests that this is a step forward towards what um, what counts as some form of closure. Like you said, it's not it's not going to go away. I think the other thing is that when I was uh, reading and listening to to people from the community talking about this experience, they said, "Look, it's not perfect. It was never going to be perfect. The recommendations can't be perfect." But I feel like we're taking actions in step. Now, some of the organizations that are um, represent Indigenous folks from a sort of a political lens and things like that, some more public facing folks have said that, you know, it's all well and good. We gave the example of signage um, earlier. It's all well and good to talk about signage. We also have to acknowledge that this is what they're saying that that we we didn't get to choose to be in this part of our that part of Canada. We didn't get to choose where our land was originally, and so there's always going to be this fraught relationship between us and and you know being told how how to name our our things and and you know we see that in in things like renaming efforts across the province to be in those local languages rather than named after, for example, architects of residential schools, like we see in some um, uh, city naming in places like Regina. John, a inquest can be somewhat institutional and a little bit antiseptic. How else is the community trying to heal after the tragedy from a couple years ago? Absolutely. So there was a, a round dance that had a tremendous turnout and, and a emotional reaction. And we've also seen uh, some articles surrounding some art that was in the space and is in and around the community from local artists, because this event and this, um, you know, motion towards healing, which inherently involves some, some re-traumatization, unfortunately, has led to conversations and and an outpouring from people who have may have left the community or left the province and um are are feeling that tug home um and that's come in the form of of art 
and and uh, uh, and resilience was a word that that has been attributed a lot to to this process. Hey, John, thank you for this. Thank you for sharing this update. Thank you for your ongoing journalism on this. Have a nice day and talk to you uh, in a couple days. Thank you. Have a great day. That's John Lepke, freelance journalist in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Coming up after the break, bit of public transit conversation. You heard the news story at the top of the hour about uh, the GTA's attempted one-fare system. Alex Smythe is going to bring that to the round table. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Following up on a story from the regional news update, Alex Smythe, you want to bring a new transit policy in the GTA to the roundtable. Yeah, Dave, because as you had mentioned before, Ontario has announced the One Fair program, which is set to come into place later this month. And it will see one price charge for riders using multiple transit systems in and around the GTA. And Don Kelly has the details of the what the program looks like. This program will be a game changer for transit riders. Premier Doug Ford says the One Fare program will save the average commuter who uses two transit agencies about $1,600 a year. It will lead to over 8 million new rides every year. Most importantly, it will be a massive savings for transit riders. The province says it will fully fund the program, which will cost $67 million in the first year to implement. The consolidated fare system will launch on the 26th of this month. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press, Toronto. Now, there were already transit discounts in place for switching between different systems, but they had excluded the TTC in the past, <laughs> which is the largest system in Canada. So uh, so that's kind of a big uh, change that's taking place. And as they mentioned, you know, that could save up to $1,600 a year. If you put it into the context of a standard commuter, that would roughly be about $6.40 per day. So let's start with you on this one, Nisreen. Does this change, this new system and program, does it entice you to want to take public transit more? Well, you had me at savings, Alex. Uh, that's that's the key uh, word here because I'm so tired of paying so much for transit in general. Um, so any type of discount price that you mention, I yes, it does entice me to use the transit more rather than catching a ride with somebody. Alex, you live uh, out there in Burlington. You are one of these people who gets to uh, go train TTC and uh, take anything else in between to try and get around the region. Do you find this program enticing? I, I, I do, Dave, because, um, you know, in with the city of Burlington and, and go transit, we already had this kind of a system set up that, okay, you could transfer to, you know, the Burlington uh, busing transit system from the, the GO system, and it would be kind of covered as part of this transfer. But to include on the TTC now, I think that's a big win because the fact is, you know, so many users require 
access to the GO system and then to transfer over to the TCC to get in mm -hmm. and around Toronto. I think that's a big win because now it means you're going to have more people who are not going to have to shell out as much just to use the Toronto system. You can get into Toronto, you're already paying for the GO system, but now you can access that network, which as I said, is the largest in Canada and you're not having to shell out more money every single time you want to use it. So I think it's, it's a big win. It opens up the possibility and, and the option for people to think, okay, now I, I can kind of look at, maybe if I'm going in Toronto on a weekend, maybe I won't drive in, maybe I will take public transit if, if you're a driver or if you're already using the system, it's gonna be less stress on you financially, which we talked many, many times about has yeah. always been an issue. The, the number of people who have to take a GO train to just get to Union Station or get to one of the stations around the outskirts of the city and then have to pay extra money to get on the TTC. It, there's only so many ghost, oh, ghost stops around the city that means that you had to use the TTC. So it just, it just makes sense to a certain degree. But here's where the word entice maybe sets me off a little bit. Unless you make the service a little bit a little bit better or more convenient, I don't know that just cost savings is going to entice people. It's going to be great for people who are already using the system and use it frequently. I just don't know how much it's going to change behavior. Uh, Parker, you're there in the audio control room. I know I gave you that clip for the regional update where uh, Premier Doug Ford describes what this uh, commute might be like for somebody coming down from Barrie. Parker, I don't know if you can pull that up for me in real time, but can you throw that out for me? I, I, just, I, just want, I just want people to hear kind of what this commute might sound like. That means someone living in Barrie can take a Barrie Transit bus to the GO station, ride the GO train to here, Downsview Park Station, and take the subway to the TMU campus, all with one fare. Nizreen, this is where I bounce the ball back to you. Remind the people, remind the people mm -hmm. out there of what your daily commute used to look like to AMI from Mississauga. Oh, so I take the My Way bus uh, to whatever, uh, another bus station. So let's say it's Meadowvale. I take the My Way bus to Meadowvale, to Union, take the subway, take another bus, to, uh, and that's that. Um, but it's a lot. It's a lot. That's, that's a lot of connecting pieces. So I totally accept your position in regards to, hey, make it cheaper. That's good. I mean, you look, listen, you still have family, in theory, who are on go routes, right? So even for you to go from Mississauga the other way, there's some savings available here for you. But really, when you get down to it, for people like the three of us who cannot drive, it's not necessarily a question of simply what does it cost to take the bus, it's what does it cost me in time. And the bus ride, the, 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 the commute that you described, if you had a car, you wouldn't take those buses, you would drive. Absolutely. I wish. I wish it was that easy. I wish. I, I don't mind the traffic. I don't mind driving in the traffic. I wouldn't mind. Absolutely. Um, it doesn't, it wouldn't take me two hours and a half on a good day. It wouldn't. Um, that's without, you know, the snowstorms and all that. And, and the convenience, nothing's ever on time. There's not enough lines in Toronto. I wish it could expand to Mississauga at least, at least to Mississauga, you know, um, a long time ago they were talking about that and and faded away that's that's what happens so i the convenience is 
what I want right now. Yeah, Alex, I know it sounds like I'm poo-pooing this. It, it, it really is a fine idea. Like, it really is a fine idea. But my overall observation about the transit system in southern Ontario is that it's overly complex and overly onerous for anybody who actually needs to use it on the day-to-day. -day. So that's where I see this as, like, a good policy that gets you some wins and might get you some votes in the suburbs. But I think if the province wants to spend $67 million in one year, there's probably a lot they can do to improve the efficiency of the service as well and it doesn't feel like that priority is there it's once again simply getting people to go train stations well i i i will push back on that just on the basis of we've seen how the provincial government is at any transit project look at the Ella, uh, Ella eglinton uh, crosstown lrt you know so any I, day I now think any day now alex yeah exactly it's been <laughs> over a decade the thing is to have any program that's going to have an immediate impact this is a simple uh, project that you can, okay, put funding in it. You can change the funding. You don't have to change the existing infrastructure. This is an easy, like, kind of change that can happen that will have a real impact on people. We're talking potentially up to $1,600 a year. That is not nothing. That is a huge amount, especially people who already have to commute. And and the other thing is too, it's like, okay, yeah, it, it'd be great to be able to, to drive into locations. Our office, you know, we have free parking where we are. What if you don't have free parking? What if you are downtown in one of the, like the towers in, in the downtown core and you still have to pay $20, $30 a day in order to access that parking? Well, then you have to start to make that financial uh, kind, of, uh, uh, kind of math in your head as well to see, is it really worth it to try to drive down every day when this could be more financially viable to entice you to take the system where you may not have before because of these changes in policy. So yeah. I, I think there are other aspects to it as well. Yeah, it, it, certainly from a cost savings point of view, $1,600 a year. Plus, as you mentioned, if you don't have to pay for parking in the downtown core, holy smokes, that all of a sudden adds That's another up. another problem. Yeah, that adds up more and more. That's another problem. Yeah, but, but guys, I, it's so important to note here that time is money too. Right, like $1,600, you save that, and maybe you save another $1,000 on parking, okay, $2,600, but if you've added an hour to an hour and a half a day to your commute, like, like that is money as well. Like that is quality of life stuff. Dave, one more, uh, one more point to bring up is that there's so many go stations that you have to pay for parking. That is what's Ooh, that's ridiculous. that's a big one too, yeah. In Guelph, that was a big issue. There's places in Mississauga you have to pay for parking. And I'm like, you have to pay for the GO train. You have to pay for the subway. You have to pay for the buses. So you also have to pay for parking to get to where you need to go using transit, which you have to pay as well. Um, it's This is where this is not convenient. Like, you're already paying for so many things. Why are you paying for parking as well? Um so you're you're have you have to calculate that in your head. So if you're paying for parking as well, is it really worth it to take the transit if you can drive? Yeah, the the three of us are all quite well traveled. Let's uh, maybe try to end this on a little bit of love. The best public transit system that you've encountered in your journeys, Alex, you go first. Hey, yeah. So uh, first, I I will look at 
on Ontario for for me I I would say of all the ones I've traveled I think the most consistently good one I've been on has either been Oakville or Ottawa which is saying something you know inconsistency <laughs> throughout that uh but I I think when they actually deliver it's a, a nice uh experience when I'm on there and then abroad I I can never say enough good things about uh Munich and, and Germany's uh, transit system overall <laughs> efficient on time clean it it's uh yeah it's just a joy to be able to go on those transit systems so something to strive for <laughs> ottawa had a really great public transit system and uh then they built an lrt that didn't work uh rumya uh, not rumya uh nizreen sorry rumya's popping up on my tv screen here uh nizreen uh, best public transit system that you've encountered I would have to go outside of Canada and go to the UK because they're underground. I've never seen anything like it. Yep. The, uh, so, so the underground subway system, definitely some yes. uh, merit on that one as well. Uh, there's no such thing as a perfect public transit system, but mm -hmm. uh, the Montreal Metro really has their, their stuff taken care of. It spans huge swaths of the cities, even through a couple different areas of the downtown core, being able to go north or south in the downtown core. Really smart stuff, getting people out to the South Shore, getting people to the northern part of the island. The one thing they have not quite figured out, and it's coming with the expansion of the REM system, is getting folks to the West Islands. But definitely uh, Montreal, even for its warts and and its flaws still doing a decent job. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Nazreen. Alex is coming back in the next segment as part of the weekly news quiz. Had a couple of camera difficulties connecting with Ramya Amuthan this morning, but the telephone works, so you can find out what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern time today on AMI. Hello, Ramya. Hey, Dave. Thank you. Yes, we have wellness with Francis Wong, and we're talking about all the confusing tests and scans that are out there. So MRIs, CT scans, what are they, what are they used for, and um, how are they helpful? That's what she's going to break down for us. Also, we're chatting with uh, Daniel Woodrow, who's the co-founder of the Underground Comedy Railroad Tour, which aims to create opportunities and introduce voices of the Black Canadian comedians uh, to people abroad. So looking forward to that chat, which we were supposed to have last week, but um, because of some delays, we are going to try to get them on today. And we have Parenting with Lucia Belafonte. She's going to have a special guest on to talk about how, as an adult with a disability, you can achieve your dreams. And this is, of course, going to kind of um, talk about how you were brought up as a person with a disability from your parents. Thank you very much, Ramya. Have a great day. You too, Dave. That's Ramya Amuthan, the co-host of Kelly and Ramya, coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Coming up after the break, another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. Alicia Yardley, Alex Smythe, and Karen McGee will put their knowledge to the test. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Tuesday. That means the weekly news quiz closes the show. Get your competitive juices flowing. You can't have a competition without contestants, though. So saying hello once again this morning to Alex Smythe in beautiful Burlington, Ontario. Hello, Alex. Hello, Dave. And also saying hello to Karen McGee in Morrisburg, Ontario. Hello, Karen. 
Hello. And somewhere in Midtown Toronto, you'll find Alicia Yardley. Hello, Alicia. Hello. There you go. Covering the Ontario spectrum through and through here. Here are the rules of the game. Three rounds of questions, three questions per round. Each question coming with three multiple choice options. If you answer the question without hearing the options, you get two points. If you need the options and get it right, you get one. If you get it wrong, the point can be stolen from some by somebody else. The order of contestants was drawn by Mary Daniel. That's the wife of producer Paul Daniel. The order will be Karen McGee, Alex Smythe, and Alicia Yardley. The first round is all about international news. Karen, forest fires are raging in a South American country. Which one? I'll take the choices, please. Is it Paraguay, Chile, or Peru? Chile. That is correct. One point for Karen McGee. Officials extended curfews in cities most heavily affected by the blazes. So Karen on the board with one point. Alex Smythe. Last week, environmental protesters hurled pumpkin soup at a piece of art in the Louvre. What famous piece of art got souped? Uh, I'm going to take a swing and say the Mona Lisa. Two points for Alex Smythe. The Mona Lisa is kept behind protective glass and was not damaged, so I don't know why we keep throwing soup at the Mona Lisa if there's glass there. Two points for Alex, one point for Karen. The pressure is on you, Alicia, early in the game in round number oh, one. Man. This one also going into South America. Last week, a South American city went a whole day without cars on its street to combat traffic and air pollution. Which city? Uh, I'll need the choices. Is it Santiago, Buenos Aires, or Bogota? I'll say Bogota. That is correct. One point for Alicia Yardley. The streets of Bogota, Colombia, were clear of traffic and instead filled with pedestrians and cyclists. The restrictions were in place for one day. The city was blanketed in smoke from nearby wildfires. It is wildfire season. At, uh, you know, get close to the equator. You know, warm weather all the time. So after one round... We've got a real competitive game here. Alex Smythe has two points. Karen has one, and so does Alicia. Alex, you get the first question in round number two, and this is something that you brought to the table in the round table yesterday, so you're really being put on the spot here. The 2026 World Cup schedule was unveiled over the weekend. Vancouver and Toronto will host a combined 13 games in Canada. What American city will host the most World Cup games? Oh, I'm not 100% sure. Um, I'm going to say it's going to be stuck between two. Let's go with the option, see if it clears out one of the two. All right, here we go. Option time. Is it Dallas, Atlanta, or Los Angeles? I'm going to go with Los Angeles. That is incorrect. Alicia, was it Dallas or Atlanta? I'm going to say Atlanta. Karen McGee gets the default point. I was really hoping, I was really hoping that Alex was going to guess outright there because then I could have potentially gotten the default point, but I, but I guess not. So there you go. A ding 
for Karen McGee on that one. So uh, there we go. Karen McGee drawing even with Alex Smythe at two points apiece. By the way, Team Canada will begin the tournament at Toronto's BMO Field on June 12th of 2026. So mark your calendars now. <laughs> Okay, question number two of round number two. This one's heading over to Alicia. Selena Robinson was a provincial minister of post-secondary education. She resigned after making comments related to the war in Israel. Where was she a minister? What province was she a minister in? Uh, can I get the choices, please? Is it Alberta, British Columbia, or New Brunswick? New Brunswick. That is incorrect. Karen, a chance for a steal. Alberta or B.C.? Alberta? That is incorrect. Oh. Alex Smythe picks up the default point on that one. Uh, Selena Robinson, by the way, uh, resigned uh, late yesterday. So I had to update this uh, news quiz this morning because we do things in real time. All right, Alex, back in the lead with three points to Karen's two and Alicia's one. But Karen, you get question number three of round number two. A policy proposal to decriminalize drugs has popular support in an eastern Ontario town, according to a report from a local agency. Karen, this is your neck of the woods. You oh. better get this. What town is it? I'm going to take the choices only because I have an idea, but I'm not 100%. Okay, well, Karen, hardly following the local eastern Ontario news. I'm, I'm stunned. There's Stunned, so shocked, many little towns out appalled. here. Like, do you know how many towns there are in eastern Ontario? Well, none of these ones are small. Uh, Kingston, Cornwall, or Brockville? So I was thinking Cornwall, but I might change my thought to Kingston. I'm going to go Kingston. Ding, ding, ding. There you go. Karen I wouldn't McGee. consider Kingston eastern Ontario. Kingston's west. I, you know what? I've always thought of Kingston as the border. I've always thought that Kingston, Ontario yeah. is the border between Southern Ontario and Eastern Ontario. Uh, Alex Smythe, take on that. Where's the border between Eastern Ontario yeah. and Southern yeah. Ontario? hundred uh, percent, I agree. It's, Kingston is when you start to get into Eastern Ontario. That's kind of like the cutoff point. <laughs> Alicia, what say you? Oh, man, it's, uh, it's hard to say. Like, I would say... Anything east of Toronto is east for me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, so Belleville. Eastern Ontario starts in Belleville or maybe even in Scarborough, according to Alicia. Uh, Karen, yeah, because the world revolves around Toronto. We Karen, know that. Karen uh, how, how does it feel to be Eastern Ontario explained by a bunch of Torontonians? Interesting. I have thoughts, <laughs> but, I, but I'd like to keep. I'd like to keep my job, so I'll keep it myself. You know, probably not atypical of Torontonians to tell uh, the rest of the province uh, how to live. Uh, by the way, I've kind of lost track on the scoring here, but I think we've got Karen at I'm three. Winning. Karen at three, Alex at three, and uh, Alicia at one. By the way, 63% of respondents said it would be a good idea to decriminalize drugs in Kingston. Uh, only BC has similar policies on the books. Okay, it's anybody's game. Anybody's game going here into the third round. But Alicia, you got to do some work here as you're getting the first question as my computer decides to freeze on me. My computer's been very helpful, very helpful to me this morning. Here we go. Okay, Good. great. It only melted down twice before the show today, so that was really oh, positive. Okay, Alicia, question number one of round number three. A U.S. city was blanketed with more than 100 inches of snow before the end of January for the first time in its history. Which one? Uh, I will need the choices, please. Is it Chicago, Buffalo, or Anchorage? 
100 centimeters? Oh, 100, let me double, 100 inches, 100 inches. 100 inches. Okay, I'm going to say Anchorage. That is correct. Talked oh. about this during one of Alex's weather reports last what week. What about Buffalo? Uh, they, I don't what? think I, I don't think they got to a hundred inches. I uh, saw people shoveling out seats for football games. With it, my that's own pretty eyes common though. On uh, TV. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty Buffalo. common. Buffalo. Yeah. They, they just shovel that's, that's in Buffalo. Buffalo in winter. Yeah, yeah. They, they just they're just perpetually shoveling. That's that's what you do. By the way, uh, more than a hundred inches just by the end of January. Anchorage's all-time record for snowfall for an entire winter is 134.5 inches. That was in the winter of 2011. So Anchorage uh, still has a couple more months to, or a couple more weeks to work on that one. Okay, Karen McGee, speaking of weather reports that you would have heard on the show, a weather system brewing off the Pacific coast last week. It dumped a lot of rain across the West Coast. It has a technical name. What is it? I'll take the choices. Is it a Christmas bomb, a Great White Norther, or a Pineapple Express? I want to say Pineapple Express. That is correct. One point for Karen McGee, and good thing, because, Alex, you were next <laughs> up on the guesses there, and I would have been shocked and horrified if you didn't get it. So that puts Karen McGee into the lead. By the way, Pineapple Express, uh, because it originates near Hawaii, not because of the Seth Rogen movie. So Karen McGee has the lead by one point over Alex and two points over Alicia. Question number three of round number three goes to Alex. So Alex, you can win this whole thing outright or you can tie it up or maybe even Alicia still has an opportunity here if you just go for the win and go for two. So uh, there's, there's, there's all kinds of implications here for Alex Smythe. Economic data has been released for the G7. Which European country is expecting a contraction in gross domestic product. Can you say the question one more yeah, time? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think this requires some very significant clarification. Economic data has been released for the G7, so the G7 countries. One country of the G7 is expected to have a contraction of gross domestic product. It's a European country. Which European country is expecting a contraction in their gross domestic product? I'm going to say the UK, Dave. That is incorrect. Alicia, you can take a swing at this for two and tie Karen up here. I'm going to take the choices. <laughs> okay, Alicia playing for a tie for second place. Uh, Italy or Germany? Uh, Germany. That is correct. One point for Alicia Yardley, who uh, decided that she did not want to win this game. Uh, by the way, the reasons attributed to uh, zero growth include higher energy prices and, of course, costlier credit. You all know that one uh, deeply, deeply if you have a mortgage. Okay. There's time on the clock here. Let's play the tie-breaking question just for the heck of it, and then I'll declare Karen McGee the winner. So... Just to remind you, we do this closest to the pin. I'm going to ask you a question, and y'all get to guess at the actual number. Whoever's close is guess closest to the number wins. On Sunday, Canadian music legend Joni Mitchell won a Grammy for Best Folk Album for her album, Joni Mitchell at Newport Live. How many Grammys has Joni Mitchell won during her career? Alicia, first guess goes to you. Uh, eight? Karen? 
I'm trying to remember if it was her first Grammy or her first time performing at the Grammys. So I'm going to go one. Alex? You know, I, I, I know it was her first time performing. I, she's won multiple. I, I think Alicia nailed it at eight, but I'm going to go one under and say seven. And Alicia gets it because the number is 10. This was her 10th oh, nice. Grammy Award. But with that, even with her bad, unnecessary tie-breaking round guess, your winner is... Oh, jeez, <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, well, Karen McGee, take your win. Take your win and maybe the backhanded compliments. But you got to get a dig in there. You just can't help yourself. Oh, I, that's, the, that's why we like hanging out together. We tease each other a little bit. We do. We, we mock when appropriate, but we also praise. That's part of the partnership that is Dave Brown and Karen McGee. Uh, Karen, daily poll question on the way out the door. Folks can find it at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Have you ever experimented with a trendy diet? Well, Dave, you've seen my weight go from various stages. So we will say that, yes. And my least favorite one was the cabbage soup diet, which I think was like early 90s, late 80s. And basically, you only ate cabbage soup. And there was a very specific recipe. There was like onions and a full cabbage and cans of tomatoes and carrots. And it was very acidic and it was not good. Yeah, the cabbage soup doesn't exactly uh, speak to me. Mm -hmm. Alicia Yardley, have you ever experimented with a trendy diet? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've done keto and um, intermittent fasting as well, which is how I managed to lose about like 90 pounds. So wow. it did work. Okay. All right. Results results based. I like that. Empirical evidence to wrap up the show after the quiz. Alicia, thank you for this. Congratulations on a great effort in the quiz. Thank you. Karen, congratulations on your win. Always a pleasure, my friend. And Alex, a nice job. Uh, tying for second place uh, that Alicia came right for you on on that one. Just a reminder, you can vote on the poll at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545. That's it. That's all the time there is for the show today. Don't worry, things kick off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe play fair but don't forget to have some fun hey dave brown here if you enjoy this podcast portion of our show remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m eastern time on ami tv Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.